All right. So next week we do not have Wellspring because it's the Wednesday before Thanksgiving. And then the week after that, you guys are going to want to be here. Um, because Sarah Demarest is going to come and teach on Proverbs 14.1, and you are going to want to be here. So I'm so excited for that. She's excited for that. She prepares like no one's business. She studies and studies the Word, and she loves you women, and she loves to teach. So that's going to be exciting. And then after that is December 7th, and we're going to have a time of fellowship and sharing and a brunch. And what we do, last last year we kept it very simple. We set up a table. We brought in fruit. You know, everyone just kind of brought, uh, signed up to bring things. We brought fruit and muffins and kind of brunchy breakfast stuff. And um, we, we took the time to just share what God had been teaching us thus far in Wellspring. And it was a really, really, really sweet time. So um, that's what's ahead, and then after that we don't meet again until January 11th. We have over a month off. So, um, But we were wondering if anyone, um, and you don't have to tell us today, but be thinking about that and praying about that, would be willing to kind of head that up, coordinate it, coordinate the food and the drinks and napkins and all of that stuff for us that would be that would be very helpful just so just let Chris or I know about that and then um is that it Chris that's it okay let's um let's go before the Lord Father we come before you with hearts that are I imagine kind of all over this morning busy hearts maybe faint hearted um, not feeling well distracted so as we gather here right now this morning God we ask that you would help us to quiet our hearts that we would not have distracted hearts that we would have teachable hearts humble hearts listening hearts hearts ready to hear what you have for us in your word. Lord, and the only way we can have a heart that hears you is because you've opened up our hearts to hear you. You you saved us. You chose us. You saved us. You've redeemed us. You've justified us. You've called us to be yours by sending your son to purchase us to pay the penalty of our sin on a cross at Calvary for us. And now, Lord, your son Jesus is sitting at your right hand making intercession for us, and he is our great high priest. Thank you. Thank you so much for salvation and all that it entails. And thank you, Lord, that we will one day have the fullness of your rest with you in glory. And now as we open your word, God, I pray that um, you would help me. We're dependent on you. I'm dependent on you to communicate it well. We thank you for the kids and the servants over in Wellspring Kids. Lord, I pray that you would 
soften their little hearts and draw them to you as they hear about you and your goodness and your son week after week. Lord, thank you for this church. Thank you for your mercy. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for each and every one of these women in here and the and the families that they represent, the households they represent. God, we pray that you would be glorified this morning as we commit it to you. And it's in your son's name we pray. Amen. Okay, so here we are. Anybody want to just guess what week this is? Quick. Ten. Ten. It's week ten. Isn't that just something? It like goes by so fast. Um, for me, anyway, it does. And we're here, you know, for a purpose. We always say it every week. And it starts... Um, here as we encourage one another to shepherd our hearts. You can flip your notebooks over toward Jesus Christ with the word of God so that we uh, live out the gospel, thus strengthening the church and its gospel purpose. It starts with discipline one when we do that. Discipline one, where she prayerfully shepherds her heart toward God through the word of God and in particular, the gospel. It's all about our hearts. That's a ground level. The word of God is his tool, his exalted tool given to us inspired by God. It's what God has given to us to reveal himself to us. And we desperately, desperately need to come to his word to see him, to see him and to meet with him. And when we come to his word, it's kind of like this. Think of a window. Think of a window. You know, do you look at a window to see the glass? No, that's not what you what a window is designed designed for to see the glass. You want to see through the window. You look through the window to see what's on the other side. We just don't stop right there and look and examine the glass. So when we go to His Word, we go to see Him. We go to see our Savior. We go to see and meet with our Savior and to know Him. So we must be diligent. We must be diligent and persevere. And we must encourage one another to do that too. And then whatever God sets in our lives, whatever circumstance he brings to us will be impactful for his kingdom. And the first place of impact is our household, discipline too. She shepherds, or she ministers to those in her household with her heart for God and the gospel. So as we move our teaching uh, end of discipline two. Remember, it's not because we're moving away from discipline one and we forget about our hearts. And I know at this point we're kind of sounding like a broken record, but we never graduate from the heart. We just can't. We just can't do that. So as we move on to discipline two, we really need to shepherd our own heart well in order to embrace what God says about the household. And I imagine that some of you in this room may be pretty eager to get to the household relationships, eager to get to discipline too. But maybe there are some here that may not be so excited about it, thinking that maybe it really doesn't apply to you right now. I just want to encourage you. It does. It does. It really does. It applies to all of us. He brought all of us together um, from different seasons of life and circumstances into his body and he unites us. And so it's important to know God's design for the home and his heart regardless of what season we're in. 
we're all in different seasons. But even if you're in a season that, you know, if you're married and you don't have children, you're married and you do, your daughter living at home, you're single, you're preparing for uh, being married in the future. It's so important for wise shepherding of girls in student ministries or young girls that that the Lord brings into your life in order to have God-honoring attitudes to your parents and to your siblings. You know, ready to impact others' hearts with the gospel when opportunity arises, maybe with family that's not living with you at home. I have extended family like cousins I have awesome conversations with about this. Maybe to glorify God in conversations with your co-workers and your friends when you're talking about God's heart for marriage, even if you're not married. And God's heart for the household. And in order to have a better understanding of God's heart for the passing of the faith from one generation to another in the body of Christ. Paul said to Titus, train the older women so they'll train the younger women. So... We need to encourage one another, to encourage our sisters who are married. Even if you're single, you can encourage someone who's married to savor their marriage. You know, and I, as Thanksgiving and Christmas is fast approaching, um, we're going to have more family opportunities, aren't we? A lot of us are. So let's try to be intentional about glorifying God in these relationships with your shepherded heart eager to make a, uh, much of your Savior and how you relate to those that you're with. See, it's God's perfect plan. It's his strategy that we would actually live with people and that our heart for God would give off a gospel aroma to them right there in our, in our homes, in our household with those people. So I'm wondering, um, have you guys been kind of thinking more about this lately as we're starting to get into this? I don't even see one head nodding. <laughs> I see Cammie's head nodding. I see your head. <laughs> um, but anyway, we're going to move on to discipline three. With a heart for God and the gospel and fulfilling her ministry within her household, she steps into the church to shepherd others toward God and the gospel. So as we're growing, as we're growing in our faithfulness to shepherd our own hearts with God's word, And as we're growing to be faithful in ministering to our households and in our family relationships, then we can be a significant instrument in our Redeemer's hand to minister to those outside of those relationships, outside of the relationships that's in our home. And if we're intentional, if we labor, if we're diligent about these disciplines, then we'll have something to contribute because we'll be dragging every um, role into our gospel identity. Remember when Scott taught on that um, back in September, September 18th, if you missed it, it's, it's, I encourage you to listen to it. But it's really helpful to think about our lives that way, with our gospel identity, dragging who we are into every single part of our life, into school, into work, into church, into our neighborhood relationships. Drag them all into the gospel under its influence, under its priority, so that the gospel is displayed in every part of our lives, every part. And when we do that, we have a powerful part in the gospel. So, um, take out your outline, please. 
Chris started teaching through this last week, Discipline 2, the home of biblical survey of the home. Does everybody have that? And we started to gain a sense of what God thinks about the heart and household relationships and what he says to one generation and how they should be concerned about the next generation. Now remember, remember, you don't have to be married or have children to be concerned about the next generation. You know, our household relationships and and their dynamics, um, they go through seasons of change. We represent in this room several different seasons. It isn't always going to look like it does today. So just keep that in mind, okay? It won't. This applies to every single one of us, regardless of the season of life we're in today, because seasons change. Last week, we began this biblical survey of the home life with nine categories to help us see God's heart for the household relationships, and we're going to finish up on that today. And in some of these categories, um, we're going to do what we've been doing. We're going to work our way progressively um, from the Old Testament forward into the New Testament. And again, that's because God unfolded his revelation to us gradually. So as we survey, remember, as Christians, we're not under Mosaic law. Okay, for instance, like Chris said last week, we don't obey, honor your father and mother um, because it's in the Ten Commandments, but we do obey it because Jesus taught it in Matthew. And all of Scripture is revelation, and all of Scripture is profitable. The Old Testament gives us examples. It reveals God's character, reveals our character. So all of Scripture is profitable. But when it comes to understanding what we're to do in regards to household relationships, we want to obey, we want to obey for the right reasons under Christ, to exalt Christ. He's, the great, he's greater than the Mosaic Law. And I'm going to do a quick review of what Chris taught last week. If you, anybody not here or, or not able to catch up and listen? Everybody up to speed? Okay, good. All right, well, number one, we looked at the relationship between the heart and household relationships. Remember, God had very specific expectations for the home as he was giving the Mosaic Law. He was thinking about household relationships. Like in the Ten Commandments, the first four are concerned with Israel's relationship to God, the vertical relationship, right? And then the, and then the very next thing he addresses is the horizontal relationship in the household and relationships between people. You know, like honor your father and mother, with parent-child relationship, shall not commit adultery, husband-wife relationship. And then he goes on and, and he's concerned that Israel think rightly about their neighbor's household. These household relationships is what's on God's mind. And then in Deuteronomy 4.9, when Moses is reteaching the law after their rebellion and they had all died off, he's talking to the children that are now grown, the next generation before they enter the promised land. And he tells them, well, he tells them first, keep your soul diligently so they don't forget what they've seen. But God's intent wasn't just for that generation. God says, Take care of your own heart, discipline one. And then verse 10, he said, and teach it to your children, discipline two. The focus and the burden for the Israelite household um, was to make God known, was to make known what God did for them. And he was saying, you must also teach your children, the next generation, all along, 
all along he had a view towards the coming generations. And then in Deuteronomy 6, you know, he says um, in verse 5, You shall love the Lord your God, we know this, with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. These words which I'm commanding you today shall be on your heart. That's discipline one. And then he goes right into discipline two. He says, you shall teach them diligently to your sons. You shall talk and when you sit and when you walk and when you lie. He's saying everything that you do in your house Israel, everything, from sleeping to getting up to walking to going out to staying home, he's saying your household Israel is to be dominated by concern for God's word. So we see this inseparable connection between love the Lord your God with all your heart, discipline one, and our households, teach it to your children. Over and over we see the influence our heart has on our household. And then we see how the household has influence over our hearts. In chapter 7 of Deuteronomy, God says there can't be one household where an Israelite marries a foreigner who worships another god, intermarrying was forbidden. That kind of household was not to exist in Israel. And why? Well, he says because the sons get turned away from God. Hearts get turned away from Yahweh. The influence within the home will impact the heart. And it was the parents' responsibility to Israel to guard, to shepherd their children the next generation, so that they'd want to follow God. And part of that meant to not let him marry those who had other gods. All throughout these passages, it's very clear. God was concerned for the heart and the next generation, for the home, for the household relationships. And then in Ephesians 6, we see God's heart for the household. Relationships continues to be displayed in the New Testament, brought under the authority of Christ. First, Paul addresses our role as children. Obey your parents in the Lord. And then in verse 4, he says, Fathers, don't provoke your children, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. So we're to interact with the next generation, our kids, our grandkids. We must live out God's word. We must hold out God's word to them because it's the only thing that's going to give them wisdom. It's going to lead to salvation. And they need the hope of the gospel. And then Titus 2, um, God makes it very clear that a woman's faithfulness in her home is extremely important in the gospel mission of the church. That's a woman's faithfulness in her household um, that also has an impact beyond her household. The consequences of our character and our faithfulness in our home and in our relationship, in our relationships there, impacts how others think of God's word. It's a big deal. We're going to talk uh, more about Titus 2 later on. So we, uh, in point 2, we looked at an Old Testament example of a woman who grasped, grasped God's heart for the home and for the family. Ruth. She was an example of a woman who understood this at a time when everyone did what was right in their own eyes. She understood it. She demonstrated for us God's heart for the family, whoever that might include. Her love for God drove her love for her family, and for her it was her her mother-in-law, Naomi. And this morning we're going to move on to point number three in your outline, Old Testament 
uh, an Old Testament failure to grasp God's heart for the family, for the home. A failure. There there are a number of references listed, but we're going to focus on the last two. So if you will, turn to 1 Kings 21. 1 Kings 21. You're going to see Joshua, Judges, Ruth, First and Second Samuel, then there's First Kings. So after seeing Ruth, who understood God's heart for the home, we're now going to look at a woman who did not. We're going to look at Jezebel. So here's a little context. God made David king over all of Israel, all 12 tribes, after the death of Saul. And then David, he was succeeded by his son Solomon as king, who was king over all the tribes. But after Solomon died, then um, the kingdom was split into a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom. Okay, And now the southern kingdom is most often referred to as Judah. And the northern kingdom was usually called Israel. And Jezebel comes along about 75 years after the death of Solomon. So Jezebel, she marries King Ahab of the northern kingdom. She was the daughter of a foreign king. Now remember, back in Deuteronomy 7, we saw that intermarrying with pagan nations was forbidden. It was forbidden, but nonetheless, Ahab brought Jezebel to Israel to be queen. And um, he brought with her false gods, um, false worship, idolatry, thus provoking God. So already from the start, we see this is not a man, it's not a woman who understands God's heart for the home, God's heart for marriage. And we're just barely getting started. It gets much worse. In 1 Kings 18.4, Jezebel destroyed the prophets of God. And, you know, we know, we know that Israel was plagued with idolatry all throughout her history, but most of the time they... They did continue to kind of give God some lip service, um, but not Jezebel. She wanted to destroy worship of Yahweh, the one true God. And then in 1 Kings 21-25, Jezebel finds out that her husband is sullen and vexed. He's resentful and angry because this man named Naboth, he wouldn't sell him his vineyard. So, Jezebel, she schemes to get the people to kill Naboth so that Ahab can go and steal this vineyard. Now, in Israel, um, land was supposed to be handed down. It was supposed to stay in the family from generation to generation. But Jezebel, she has no regard for the home. She has no regard for the family. She has no regard for the ways of God. It's trivial. It's it's no big deal for her to take a man's life, to murder, to get his land, and to rob his family of their inheritance. And then in 1 Kings 21-25, it gives a, a commentary on Ahab after this incident. Verse 25 says, Surely there was none like Ahab who sold himself to do evil in the sight of the Lord, because Jezebel, his wife, Inside of him. <clears throat> what an indictment. Jezebel is wife inside of him. This one woman, Jezebel, is responsible for Baal worship in Israel. 
persecution of God's prophets for murder, for robbery of the family's inheritance, and inciting a king, her husband, to do evil, using and abusing her influence in her home. But sadly, that's not the end. Ahab and Jezebel had a daughter, Athaliah. And Athaliah married Jehoram. Okay, remember they're in the northern kingdom, right? So Athaliah marries Jehoram, a king in the southern kingdom. Remember her father Ahab, he's he's the king up here. So sadly, Jezebel's wicked influence spreads through her daughter. And 2 Kings verse 8 says, Jehoram did evil in the sight of the Lord because of his wife, Athaliah. So here we go again, husband doing evil because of his wife. Well, what kind of evil did he do? Second Chronicles 21.4 says, When he had taken over the kingdom of his father, he killed all his brothers. He killed all his brothers. Then Jehoram and Athaliah, they had a son, Ahaziah. Keeping this straight? <laughs> he also did evil in the sight of the Lord because of his connection with his mother's family kind of hard to keep straight but so far what we see is we see a corrupted husband we see murder robbery corrupted children a man murdering his own brother brothers more corruption of a husband and children it's the exact opposite of God's heart for the household he designed the home to be a place where his name is declared where his mighty works are remembered, taught, praised, where one generation exhorts another generation to love him, to pursue him, to desire him, to live for him, to obey him. But this family has turned the home into a place that spawns evil, even against one another. They've rejected any semblance of God's heart for the household. There's a pervasive rottenness and it's just spreading and we're still not done turn to 2 Kings 11 1 11 1 now in 2 Kings 10 uh, uh, Athaliah's son King Ahaziah he's killed and you can read with me in 2 Kings 11 1 what happens next when Athaliah the mother of Ahaziah saw that her son was dead She rose and she destroyed all the royal offspring. This is a grandmother murdering her grandchildren. Athaliah annihilated her grandchildren. Why? Well, she did that so she could be in control. So she could be in charge. So that she could rule. She wanted the throne. Now Jezebel and Athaliah, they're almost kind of fun to hate, aren't they? It's kind of nice to find somebody who's way more sinful than we are, right? But really, they should make us shudder. I know there are times I want to be in control. I want to rule especially those in my household. 
Do you? To grasp after what I want? To maybe even sin to get it? See, we can struggle with the same things, same sin, and it's destructive. It's destructive. And that's why we must guard our hearts. We've been given new hearts. We still must guard them and lay them bare before God's word. Plead for a heart for our households that matches God's desires over our own. We will impact our household, right? The question is how. So far in this survey, we've started looking at the relationship between the heart and household relationships in Scripture. And we saw Ruth's heart for God and how that impacted her household in a beautiful way. And now we've just seen how destructive it is when there's rejection of God's heart. For the household relationship. There's just no way to conclude from scripture that the household isn't important. It is. It's the decisive place, relationally speaking. Okay, let's move on to point number four in your outline, the ease at which God's forgotten in the home. Now let's go back to Deuteronomy 8.10. Now, it's Deuteronomy 8.10. Context-wise, we're back on the plains of Moab where Moses, he's reteaching the law to Israel. It's about 40 years after they left slavery in Egypt, long before they had a king. And he's warning them. Here's the warning, starting in verse 10. When you've eaten and are satisfied, you shall bless the Lord your God for the good land which he has given you. Beware, lest you forget the Lord your God by not keeping his commandments and his ordinances, and his statutes, which I'm commanding you today. So he's telling Israel, when you're in this blessed situation and things are going well, that's the time to be aware. It's the time to be concerned. And, and he says the way you're going to know that you've forgotten the Lord is that you're not obeying. And then in verse 12 he says, Lest when you have eaten and are satisfied and have built good houses and lived in them, and when you're hurt and your flocks multiply and your silver and gold multiplies, and all that you have multiplies, Here's a warning. Then your hearts become proud and you forget. Forget the Lord your God who brought you out of, out from the land of slavery, out of the house of slavery. That household that God gives them there where he blesses them so richly, that household becomes the very place that forgets God. And they needed to be aware of that. God's telling them ahead of time. The home God's giving them will be a place where they, they easily forget God. And, you know, he's warning them to be aware and guard against it, just like we need to be aware of that danger and guard against it. It's very easy to forget God in the home. Thankfully, in Christ, the household can become a platform for the gospel, for impacting everyone else in the household with the gospel. That's point number five in your outline. <clears throat> point number five. The impact of one's faith on the entire household. Let's go to Acts 16. Acts 16. And you can read Acts 10 about Cornelius on your own. Um, and then in Acts 16.13, Paul makes his way to Philippi on a second missionary journey. 
Starting in verse 13, he says, And on the Sabbath day we went outside the gate to a riverside where we were supposing that there would be a place of prayer. And we sat down and began speaking to the woman, the women who had assembled. And a certain woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of pur- purple fabrics, a worshiper of God, was listening. She was listening. And the Lord opened her heart to respond to the things spoken by Paul. And when she and her household had been baptized, she urged us, saying, If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, a believer, come into my house, come into my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. Lydia had her heart opened by the Lord. And that made a huge impact on her entire household. They were all baptized. Now look down in verse 29, and we'll see the same thing with the Philippian jailer. There's a a big uprising in Philippi, beginning in Acts 16, 19. And Paul and Silas, they get thrown in jail, and they're in there at night, and they're singing hymns, and they're praying. And then there's this violent earthquake. And all the doors were open. And everyone's chains came off. Well, when this Roman guard, he woke up and he saw the doors of the prison open, he he draws a sword and he's going to kill himself because, well, he's sure that uh, all the prisoners are going to escape and he's going to die anyway by the hands of his superiors. That would have been um, what would have happened if all the prisoners were gone. But Paul, he calls out and he says, don't hurt yourself. Don't do it. We're all here. So reading in Acts 16.29... He said, uh, he, the jailer, called for lights and rushed in, and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. And verse 30, after he brought them out, he said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? What an important, significant question to ask. He didn't ask, What in the world just happened? Are you kidding me? Why aren't you gone? He knew. He knew what happened. And how did they answer him? They said, believe. Believe in the Lord Jesus and you shall be saved. You and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him together with all who were in his house. Verse 33, and he took them that very hour of the night and washed their wounds. And immediately he was baptized, he and his household, who had heard and believed and were saved. And he brought them into his house, and he set food before them, and rejoiced greatly, having believed in God with his whole household. I mean, think about it. What seemed like something that was so terrible, something awful that had just happened, God had a different plan for this Philippian jailer. So, um, the gospel was proclaimed, and, and they believed. And the gospel was pro- proclaimed in his household, and they believed. So we see the impact that just one person made on an entire household. That's the first place that this jailer made an impact, where he lived. Do you see the impact that we can make in our household? Because we love the Lord Jesus Christ, And because we love his word, you know, we can cry out to God. You know, if it would please you, Lord, 
to take and change my whole household and continue to sanctify my whole household because of what you've done in me, you know, through what you're doing in me, I want to be your slave to that end. I want to be your slave to that end. And it's a daily dying to self, putting ourselves under his word and living as Christ's slave in our household. But there's an attack on the home. Let's go to 2 Timothy 3. We're at number 6 on your outline. Number 6. Should it really surprise us that there would actually be an attack on the household? Not really, right? I mean, if there is this kind of tie between our hearts and our household and what God really wants to accomplish there, I mean, should it surprise us? No. 2 Timothy 3, starting in verse 1, he says, But realize this, that in the last days difficult times will come, for men will be lovers of self, lovers of money, boastful, arrogant, revilers, disobedient to parents. Again, there's the concern for the household. Ungrateful, unholy, unloving, irreconcilable, malicious gossips, without self-control, brutal, haters of good, treacherous, reckless, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, holding to a form of godliness, although they've denied its power. Avoid such men as these. Why? Verse 6 says, For among them there are those who enter into households. And what do they do in those households? And captivate weak women. What does he mean by weak women in these households? They're women weighed down with sins, led on by various impulses. These are women who, verse 7, are always learning and never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. Evidently, there are women in these households who don't know how the gospel addresses their sin because they're still weighed down by their sin. They were weak and susceptible. They don't know how the gospel addresses and dethrones their impulses, their desires, and changes them. Instead, they're being led by their impulses and their desires. And where do those desires, impulses, and emotions come from? Well, they weren't equipped well with the gospel to know how to deal with their sin and their impulses and desires. They're always learning something. They're learning. They're learning. But it's not hard shepherding to the word of God learning to get the knowledge of the truth, the gospel. So there's an attack. So here's the question that we need to ask after looking at 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy 3. Who or what is creeping into our homes? In our day, in our generation, our culture has a very strong, loud voice. And it comes at us in our TVs, magazines, computer, internet, books, telling us to give in to our impulses and our desires, to be lovers of self. We deserve that. You know, one of the messages they scream and proclaim is put yourself first. 
Give in to your desires. Take care of number one. You deserve it. All this all these messages that are that are self-centered and they're self-seeking, they're self-absorbed, saying that's just how you solve your problems. That's how you solve your problems. With no gospel answers. No gospel power. And I would even say even a lot of material that cloak themselves with the word Christian. We have to be careful. We live in a pleasure-seeking, pleasure-worshipping world, right? And when we're weak, when we're weak, we can be tempted to just follow along. Not realizing that in so doing, we're, we're, just, we're missing it. We're missing the ultimate pleasure found in Him, in knowing our Savior, in the, in the true knowledge, uh, the knowledge of the truth. Turn to Psalm 1611, if you will, please. I'm just going to read this. Psalm 1611 says, You will make known to me the path of life. In your presence is fullness of joy. In your right hand are pleasures forever. This is why we need to spend so much of our time in discipline. One, because if we do not understand how to shepherd our hearts to Jesus Christ through his word, if we don't use the gospel to fuel our repentance and growth and holiness, we can be weak. We can be so weak and gullible. And then we pose a threat. We pose a threat to our households. We pose a threat to our church, to the ministry of the gospel. This is so serious. We can be vulnerable to believing lies, to drinking the world's Kool-Aid, whatever the message is that they have for us, and just passing it right along to those closest to us. And that's just scary. It's just scary. So this is just this is a warning. We've got to guard against the attack and care and protect those who live in our household. And I know many of you are doing this, and you're doing it well. Many of you are. But we still need to hear and heed the warning to be aware. But we also need to guard against exalting the household above the gospel. Let's turn to Matthew 10. Matthew 10 Verse 34. Let's look at number 7. The family, the home, can become an obstacle to the gospel. So you can read most of um, these references for yourself. But in light of the value God places on the household, these next verses, they can kind of seem a bit confusing. But let's see what Jesus is saying here, starting in verse 34. Jesus says, Do not think that I came to bring peace on the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I came to set a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a man's enemy will be as members of his household. He who loves father and mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And he who does not take his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. Jesus is making a very strong point here that the gospel and his kingdom comes first and everything else, including the family, second. His point is, you come follow me first. 
See, here's what can happen. One person in a household comes to Christ, God saves them, and then they're called to take the gospel into the family, to the household. And sometimes what we see in the New Testament, like Cornelius and Lydia and the Philippian jailer, is that the whole family comes to Christ. But Jesus is teaching that's not always the case. When we bring the gospel to our family, we might actually find that members of our household become our enemies. I've experienced this, and maybe some of you have too, with extended family, even family in the household, and it's very, very difficult. But if the family begins to stand in the way of the gospel, that believer must follow Christ and not the family, even while she stays in the family, while she stays in the household seeking to display the changes Christ has made in her as she loves her family and as she serves her family and she forgives and she seeks forgiveness in that family and she submits appropriately. The family and the household relationships, they're under the gospel. They get dragged into our slave identity in Christ. So we love, we esteem, we serve those closest to us because of the gospel's impact on our life. Jesus did this in Matthew 12. And his disciples, they've gone days without eating, and his family comes looking for him and, you know, basically thinking that he's gone crazy. And so they're coming to rescue Jesus. And what does Jesus say when he finds out his family's outside? Matthew 12:50. He says, "Forever does the will of my Father who is in heaven. He is my brother and sister and mother." So Jesus is helping us understand the household relationships in their proper relationship with our kingdom identity. Well, what practical difference does this make? One way maybe um, it might be that if I put my identity in Christ under my family identity, I might find myself saying things like, you know, that's just the way I was raised. In our family, we always get angry at Thanksgiving. It's what we do. We yell at each other. It's how we are or whatever, right? Hanging on to those family traditions and ways maybe is an excuse to sin. Or for us, we have family um, who are not believers and, and, and some who are of a different, of a false religion. Where at times we may have to make some decisions, some really difficult decisions. And we, and, and we have to do that with love and we have to do that with grace. But we're Christ's first. We can also be tempted to put our identities as moms and as wives first <laughs> over our identity in Christ, right? That's real difficult sometimes. But see, when we place our household identity under our, under our identity in Christ, then it's Christ's work in us that gets brought into those relationships, not vice versa. Our identity in Christ is bigger than our identity in our family. That needs to be the direction of influence. My identity in Christ and my Savior first. And it can be hard sometimes when you're the only one in your home. It's like swimming upstream. It can be really hard. So we need one another. But there's no better way to love those in your household 
than to keep your affection for Christ first in your heart, regardless of your circumstance, regardless. The gospel enables you to do that, to shine the light of Jesus in the midst of your family, even if you're the only believer there. Turn to Ephesians 5, if you would, please. Ephesians 5, we're at number 8 at your outline. Submission to a husband requires a strong grasp on the gospel. And again, everyone, everyone needs to understand this. When we think about marriage, we need to think about Christ and the church so that we're women who build up marriage and we treasure marriage and we encourage marriage um, and how we think, how we talk, how we even talk about marriage, whether we're single or whether we're married, regardless of um, season of life that we're in. Ephesians 5.22 says, Wives, be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ also is the head of the church, he himself being the Savior of the body. But as the church is subject to Christ... So also the wives ought to be their own husbands and everything. So if the church's submission to Christ is the model for a wife's submission to her husband, we need to understand the nature of that submission, the church's submission to Christ. Believers submit to Christ in light of all that he's done for us in the gospel. He shed his blood. There's no wrath left because of our sin, because of our insubordination to God. He made us new creatures. We have new hearts. He gave us new desires. He gave us a heart for him. And as a new creation, we find his authority to be a joy. He actually equips us to submit to him. He pulled us out from under his boot of judgment. He placed us under his headship, his protection, and his care. It's the best place to be. And in light of that, submission is a joy, and it's a protection. And that is the kind of submission he tells us to bring into marriage. A woman looks beyond her husband to Christ. Out of reverence for Jesus, in light of all that he has done for us in the gospel, and what he has done in us through the gospel, we submit to Christ and we submit to our husbands. Your husband is your leader. And when we struggle to trust our earthly leader, we can still follow him because our heavenly leader, Jesus, is always trustworthy. Always. He's our sovereign, and he's good. And that is where we rest our confidence in submitting to our husbands. And that's where we encourage one another to rest their confidence. So finally, we're going to have more on this later. Finally, number nine on your outline, a New Testament model marriage. New Testament model marriage is Priscilla and Aquila. And you can read those passages on your own. Acts 18, 1 through 3, uh, Priscilla and Aquila, they partnered with Paul in the gospel, helping to support him through their tent making. And later in that chapter, they meet Apollos, who had, um, he had an incomplete view of the gospel. He only knew John the Baptist, and they were able to help his brother who was uh, deficient in doctrine, and Priscilla was right there. She was right there with her husband, helping to equip Apollos. So then Apollos was sent off, and he was useful for the gospel. 
And we see them again in Romans 16, where Paul gives thanks for many of the Christians that he knows, and Priscilla and Aquila are among them. He says they risked their necks for the gospel. They risked their necks for the gospel. It was an impressive marriage where a husband and a wife risked their necks for the gospel. I think they understood their identity. So as we wrap up, what are we seeing here in all of this? The heart of God in scripture for the household is what? We've seen that the woman of, uh, of, who loves God places a priority on spiritually influencing her household with her heart for the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's why we put discipline two right after discipline one. Can't get past that. There's no room anywhere in scripture to wiggle around from it. It's our responsibility to bring a gospel aroma to the rest of our household, to set up gospel bars to protect our household, that protect and bar out any kind of false thinking or any thinking that's not gospel thinking that could come in and deceive us and poison our families. Our home should be a place where God would love to bring people to himself, including the next generation. We need to make that a platform. I know we want our households to be that. And we want to encourage our friends and our children to have families like that, a place where he would love to work to bring children and others to himself. So, what's the spiritual climate of your home? Have you grasped God's heart for the household relationships? Taking your role seriously. I mean, there's so much at stake as we think about the next generation, as we think about the reputation of God's word. Our obedience in our homes essential for exalting God's design in his gospel work. And you know, our households, our household relationships can also be the place of our biggest failures. I was reminded again over the last couple of weeks as I've had the opportunity to study this that because of my own sinful heart, um, my household's often the place of my regrets and, and my failures. Just rubbing up against someone else closest, right? Even when I don't want to. I can be provoking and not believe the best. But I can't help but think that maybe some here may have strained, broken relationships with family members, maybe. Maybe even lost hope. That's what makes our home such a perfect showcase for the gospel. It's God's grace to us that he would bring us to the end of ourselves so that he gets all the glory for the work he does in us as we live it out, as we grow in living it out, as we seek to live it out, to trust our Savior in our household regardless of how others respond, regardless. The gospel is that powerful to enable us to love the people we live with because, because God loved us first. So as we look at what God's word says about the home and remembering that it's a sharper, sharper than any two-edged sword, and it may even expose our sin and our failures and our regrets. But when God exposes sin, it's for the purpose of restoration with him and with others. That's his grace to us. It's good. 
I want to end with a quote that Chris started with when we started last week from Council on the Cross. Council from the Cross by Elise Fitzpatrick. It's on the back of your outline. But I think it's important as we look at one of these questions in our homework that we'll be working on as we try to apply the gospel to our household relationships. The gospel changes everything about us. Most particularly, it changes how we love and treat others. Soaking ourselves in the astounding love of God for us, weak and sinful as we are, will cause us to become people who love. The pure, undefiled Prince of Heaven, Jesus Christ, was called a friend of tax collectors and sinners. should be obvious that he loves sinners because he's loved us. Living in light of this truth will enable us to love. It will remove all our self-righteousness and craving for respect. It will free us to lay down our lives and not keep a running tally of who sins most or who serves most. And it will make us patient and gentle. The gospel is the environment for all of our relationships. The gospel teaches us to love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us. The God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. And this is love. Not that we've loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. 1 John 4, 9. So we must strive for this kind of love. We need to plead with God to develop his love in our hearts. You know, we just don't wake up one day and have our households all like they should be, right? We've got to labor. We have to apply ourselves, discipline ourselves, and take advantage of every opportunity God gives us to love those in our household. But our hope is in the grace of God, which he has lavished upon us. The same grace that saves us is the same grace that sanctifies us and restores what's been torn down. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the love you have lavished on us. Father, I lift up our household relationships and pray, Lord, that they would, um, that we would move forward and labor to make them a display case of your gospel. That we would love one another well. We would encourage one another. We would come alongside one another even now as we go into our small group times. We thank you for this opportunity, and it's in your son's name we pray.